Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Batman Nightcast. I'm Chris Franklin. And I'm Ryan Daly. And this time we're talking about Detective Comics number 568, the second tie-in to the DC miniseries event Legends from 1986. As we mentioned on the last episode, one of the differences between the post-crisis Batman and the likes of Superman and Wonder Woman was that the latter two had clear lines of demarcation as evidenced by a brand new series starting at issue one. One of the other differences was the consistency of the creators behind those characters. The new Superman was driven by John Byrne, who created Man of Steel, and then wrote and drew both Superman and Action Comics, two out of the three ongoing Superman books at that time. George Perez plotted and illustrated Wonder Woman with Len Wein scripting that series at first, and these creators stuck with their books for years. Batman, again, was different. In the first year after the New Earth, six different writers and 12 different artists contributed to Batman and Detective Comics. Some of these creators left more of an impression than others, and some appeared fleetingly to tell one brief story and then moved on. And on this podcast, Chris and I are going to spotlight some of these creators, their history in comics, and what they added to the Batman universe. For this episode's creator spotlight, it made sense to focus on the one consistent voice across both Batman titles who began his stewardship with the era that we're covering. Of course, we're talking about the new Batman editor, Denny O'Neill. I think he's probably the single most influential creator on Batman of the last 50 years. Like Batman, Denny O'Neill debuted in May of 1939, so that's kind of ironic. <laughs> <laughs> in the mid-60s, O'Neill, who was a journalist, was brought into Marvel Comics after Roy Thomas noted some articles on comics that he had written. He scripted a couple Doctor Strange scripts for a little bit and other work, including lots of Millie the Model comics. That work kind of dried up, so he went over to Charlton Comics and began working for editor Dick Giordano. In 1968, when Giordano left Charlton for D.C., he brought many of his creative staff with him, including O'Neill. His first job there was scripting Steve Ditko's Beware the Creeper. O'Neill worked for Giordano, but also picked up work from Julius Schwartz, including taking over the Justice League title from the original writer Gardner Fox with Justice League of America number 66. It's here that O'Neill first wrote the character of Batman, although this was still the Silver Age Batman that he was writing at this point. Schwartz was in the process of revamping his Batman titles in an effort to stave off the backlash from the meteoric rise and fall of the 60s TV series. He hoped to return the character to his mysterious roots from the Golden Age. With Detective Comics number 395, dated January 1970, O'Neill, penciler Neil Adams, and inker Dick Giordano began their legendary collaboration on the character with the moody story, The Secret of the Waiting Graves. Along with Adams and fellow Bat Pencils Irv Novick and Bob Brown, O'Neill redefined the character of Batman in the early 70s. His Batman was more grim, and O'Neill was the first writer to explore the obsessive nature of the character. O'Neill's biggest contributions to this era include reviving the long-forgotten character of Two-Face and returning the Joker to his homicidal ways. He first introduced a love interest for Batman in Talia, and then an arch-enemy in her father, Ra's al Ghul, setting off one of the first multi-issue sagas in the Batman strip history. During this period, O'Neill also revamped Wonder Woman with artist and editor Mike Sikowski, turning her into a depowered, karate-chopping Emma Peel type. Also under Schwartz, he and Adams shared their other great collaboration, the Green Lantern Green Arrow series, where O'Neill got to explore relevant social and political issues through the Emerald Archer, who he recast as a very vocal liberal who had recently gone broke. O'Neill and Adams shocked fans and made headlines by revealing Green Arrow's teen sidekick Speedy was a heroin addict. In many ways, this was the true death knell of DC's bright and sunny Silver Age. 
O'Neill continued to work for DC as both writer and editor up until 1980, reviving The Shadow with Mike Kaluta and even killing Kathy Kane, a.k.a. Batwoman, with artist Don Newton in one of his last Batman stories of the decade. He moved over to Marvel as writer and editor and famously spearheaded the Daredevil series during Frank Miller's first legendary run. O'Neill then scripted the title until Miller returned, and both of them worked with artist Dave Mazzuchelli, who will also figure heavily into Batman's future. O'Neill also wrote many other Marvel titles, including Iron Man, and worked on developing the Transformers toy line into a title for the company, even naming the character of Optimus Prime. In 1986, O'Neill left Marvel to return to DC and take over the reins of the Batman titles and other books. He held that position until his official retirement in 2000. O'Neill ran a From the Den column in nearly every issue of Batman and Detective for many of those years. In his first column in Batman number 401, which we covered last episode, he described the many times he'd visited quote-unquote Gotham City. He cited that every city is Gotham City. How when men built cities to protect them from the savages of the woods, they unwillingly bred new horrors within. He talks of how he always wished there would be, quote, someone strong, cunning, and compassionate, walking with him through the city. And this is what this book is about, according to O'Neill. In his column for this issue, Detective Number 568, O'Neill states what he has in store for Batman. He says there will be no hard revamp like Superman is experiencing at the time. He said, We're not planning on changing Batman's origin, nor anything else that's been established about Batman, his friends, foes, locales. Rather, we're regressing them, purifying them. He then goes on to discuss the different iterations of Batman, the 50s sci-fi character, the 60s TV-era comedian, and then the recently evicted nice guy with an exceptionally interesting life. O'Neill prefers the original version of the character as created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, the one Julius Schwartz made him write in the 70s. Again, he was quoted as saying, A man whose life was shattered by the murder of his parents, and who was forced by that terrible event to become something both more and less than human. He is a crime fighter, a crime avenger, because if he weren't, he'd be nothing at all. He is driven, tormented, obsessed, as dark in his way as the mean streets he prowls. O'Neill then assures the readers that despite the grim description, his number one goal is to create an entertaining comic. He also states he won't be running any letters from the last days of the Ween era, preferring a clean break. As we'll see in the next few months, one could argue the changes O'Neill made were eventually pretty drastic. There was no hard stop and start with continuity, but by the time you get around 30 issues of Batman and Detective and look back, a lot has changed in the Batverse. I'm kind of fascinated by his approach and the way he kind of mentions it in his letter that, you know, we're not rebuilding this thing from the ground up. You know, we're not deconstructing anything. We're, I, I think he, his word, purifying Batman and maybe this attempt to sort of streamline and trim some of the fat of his personality so that they're they're creating a more sort of hardened, chiseled version. It's very interesting, and it's certainly I, – I think it, it did become the sort of the defining version of Batman that I think we have today mm-hmm. is this version that O'Neill is pitching in this letter, that this is what he wants. I think this is eventually what we got. It took a while. Mm-hmm. Um, some might even argue it, it didn't come around until after O'Neill may have even left the office. But I think this is the type of Batman that we're getting a lot today. We'll see. I mean, is this is this what Batman needed? Is this taking Batman to where we want him to go? I mean, I, I think part of the fun of this podcast and what we will be exploring is seeing, okay, I really like this version that they're taking Batman. Oh, have they taken him too far? Oh, now is he too grim? Is he too gritty? Can he smile a little bit? Um, <laughs> 
you know, I, I think you know we we kind of talked about like this is a this is a journey into the darkest night for Batman, like the, this really dark version. And at what point does he kind of reach the what we prefer Batman to be? And does he go f- too far? I don't know. Right. It's just uh, I, I don't know. It's just sort of fun to see where this journey will take us. So. Right, and and I think it's interesting that he, he he thinks that the Batman before was a a nice guy that had an interesting life, more or less. And I mean, you know, the, they had definitely softened the character uh, uh, back a bit from what he was in the the Bronze Age. I mean, he still wasn't. You know, I mean, he wasn't walking up the steps to City Hall in the daytime or anything like that. But he had. They had emphasized. But by basically by making Robin a regular character in the book again, they had kind of lightened things up by introducing Jason. So I think the influence of the Dark Knight, uh, the Frank Miller series, is you know that of course sold like gangbusters. So DC had to be saying, "Hey, wait a minute, <laughs> you know this this version of Batman seems pretty popular. You know it's it's outselling Batman and Detective." I, I don't know that I'm assuming it did because it was so popular. I mean, maybe if you figured in newsstand sales, it didn't. But uh, but still, that that had to make the people at DC think. Okay, wait a minute. What direction do we need to go in with this character? And like you said, it's you know it'll be interesting to see where we where we think they kind of you know they haven't gone far enough yet. They went too far. They stepped back. They went over the edge and they stepped back. You know, it's 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 going to be a fun ride. I think maybe a certain readers expectation of batman or certainly what our preference for batman it might depend on how much wiggle room we allow how much you know variation we allow in our batman does Mm -hmm. batman have to be one thing can batman be multiple things right uh that's something that every reader every listener is going to have to judge for themselves because certainly some people have very rigid fixed ideas of what batman must be right and certainly other people allow for Batman 66, Zack Snyder versus Batman, and everything in between. Right. It depends, but uh, yeah, yeah, we're going to see a lot of that variation uh, throughout the course of this podcast. So, And the next issue of this comic, of Detective Comics, we're going to get a very multifaceted Batman that is, at, <laughs> at, at one time, a pretty grim fellow, but also uh, with Robin, he's very Adam West-like, you know, so... I'm just going to tell you right up front, I love that. <laughs> so, so I'm I'm looking forward to talking about those because I, I that's a that's a juggling act of of major proportions to make that work and and I think it does in these comics that are coming up. So, it'll be nice to see. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, listen to some promos and then we're going to come back and talk about Detective Comics number 568. <laughs> Two hundred and twenty-nine different characters spanning the galaxies of the Legion of Superheroes, presented across seven comic book issues. A new miniseries as part of the Who's Who podcast. To handle this many characters, the Irredeemable Shag is bringing in a ringer, or maybe we should call them flight ringers. Who's who in the Legion of Who's who in the Legion of Who's who in the Legion of Superheroes? The Legion of Superheroes in the Legion of Superheroes. The Legion of Superbloggers team up to present Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes, a three-episode miniseries in 2017, part of the Who's Who podcast on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Long live the Legion. 
podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. Join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comments from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. Okay, we're back. And as we said, we're going to talk about Detective Comics number 568. It was cover dated November 1986. This is Legends Chapter 2 from the uh, DC Legends crossover event. It was on sale August 21st, 1986. The cover by Klaus Janssen shows the battered body of Batman hanging by his cape from a road sign on the outskirts of Gotham City. The Dark Knight has been victimized by the large birds that surround him, hanging on his body and the sign with a larger flock flying in the city skies in the background. What do you think about this cover, Ryan? I like the idea of the cover, but something about the execution. Part of it is maybe the position of Batman. And this seems like, uh, you know, Jansen should have known better, but he seems way too high on the page that he's crowding out the title. You know, Detective Comics is sort of cramped off to the side. There's also got to be the Legends banner head over that. So the title copy seems kind of small. The printing of the birds, like some of them are in black, some of them like the shading are in brown. I don't know if it's the color contrast between the red skies and the green sign. I don't know. I, I like the idea of it. I'm just not wild about this particular image. There's just a lot of stuff that feels like it's it's crowding, and it's it's really loud, but it's unfocused. I don't know. I think you're right. I think everything's shoved up into the upper portions of the cover too much. I think there's a lot of dead space at the bottom. Uh, maybe he thought put, like, creator credits down there or something. I don't know, but... Maybe he did that to show how high up he was, but it kind of, I think it would work better if he was, you know, all you'd have to do was, you know, extend Batman's cape and have him hanging farther down from where his cape's tied off. Yeah, yeah. And it would even look worse like he's, you know, hanging looser. His cape actually looks pretty short here, which, of course, it's not (laughs) by most artist standards during this period. But I'm also not sure. I'm not sure the cape would support him like that. I think the cape would probably tear. Yeah, probably <laughs> would. Yeah, but, or at least pull. If if you're one of those guys that thinks the cape and cowl are all one piece, then it would pull his mask oh, yeah. off. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah, it and it's interesting. The Detective Comics, uh, the previous logo, the main logo had a small Detective Comics starring Batman. The Batman logo was big. Uh, so this is mm-hmm. a switch back to Detective Comics being the being the main logo, but it's pretty tiny here, like you said. So yeah, it's we're gonna get into the art in this, but I, I think I honestly I think the cover is actually even though I'm critical of it, I think it's one of the stronger elements of the book. You know, because I'm I just you know, just go ahead and say I'm I'm not a real big fan of the art on the inside. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so but yeah, I mean it's. I've seen this cover reproduced in compilations of Batman covers. You know, they point this out, I guess, because it just shows a defeated Batman. And it does show that, you know, Batman's, you know, has been beaten up by a bunch of birds. It's like Batman and Alfred Hitchcock movie or something. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it could be better, but it's, it's, it's okay. 
There's one other thing I just kind of noticed because I'm looking at this really closely. Batman's mouth. I don't know what it is, but it to me almost – it's not a smirk, but to me he kind of – he doesn't look like he's that bothered by his position. Like he's kind of turning his head to the side to like the bird on his shoulder like, hey, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> you're kind of annoying or something. Like he's, he's a little bit annoyed but not really like, yeah, hang on. I was just going to hang out here anyway. I'm, I'm fine. Well, that's that's the <laughs> trap of how do you show Batman knocked out? Because if you show his right. eyelids, then it just looks weird because then oh, yeah. his eyes and his eyes are white. So if you buy into the the heart, or the are they lenses in his mask? Is it just a comic effect that when he puts the mask on, his eyes go white? You know, I mean, it it, it never seems to work. However, anybody does it. So mm-hmm. when, to show him knocked out doesn't really work very well in the comics. <laughs> Uh, okay, you ready to jump into the synopsis? Yep, let's do it. All right. Eerie was written by Joey Cavallari, penciled by Klaus Jansen, who also did the coloring. John Costanza was the letterer, and Denny O'Neill was the editor. Students flee from an unusually large predatory bird on the campus of Gotham University. They head to the packed rally being held by rabble-rouser G. Gordon Godfrey, who is speaking out against superheroes and extolling the virtues of the common man relying on himself. Watching all of this from on high are Batman and Robin. The boy wonder admits Godfrey's rants are enough to make him want to hang up his cape, with Batman reminding him they are working toward the day that they can retire. The dynamic duo then witness the giant bird attack its quarry. Batman manages to lasso the bird and has Robin attend to the injured student. He is pointed toward the natural science building and takes off to see what all of the fuss is about. At said building, the penguin is abducting the other peregrine falcons developed in the lab of a zoologist named Baird. But the penguin isn't satisfied with just the bird. He wants the computer disk containing the research data and Dr. Baird himself. Batman enters and roughs up the penguin's goons, but the waddling master of foul play pops a knife blade from his famous umbrella and holds it at his hostage's neck, forcing Batman to let him make off with the doctor, the data, and the falcons. Later in the Batcave, Batman bones up on peregrines and records copies of their bird calls, much to Robin's puzzlement. Across town, the penguin awaits word from Baird's benefactor, a wealthy Arabian sheik who funded the experiment. If his demands aren't met in eight hours, the penguin will kill the falcons, Baird, and destroy the data. But the man of a thousand umbrellas has hopes for an even bigger coup, the death of Batman. Batman's research informed him that the falcons sometimes nest in skyscrapers as high as 30 stories. He finds the peregrines caged on top of such a building, and what he thinks is the penguin out for a moonlight stroll. Unfortunately, it's a dummy, and Batman falls into the falcon's cage. Penguin is alerted to his sprung trap and delights as Batman tries to defend himself from the razor-taloned predators. Using a small tape player, he plays the sound of a falcon's danger call, making the flying creatures afraid of him. Meanwhile, Dr. Baird has freed himself from his bonds and puts a falcon lure in the penguin's back pocket. Batman sees this and releases the Falcons. They head straight for the Penguin, and it's soon bird-on-bird action, with the Penguin on the losing end. Batman takes out the goons and nets both the real birds and the fat fake ones. Back at Wayne Manor, Bruce and Jason watch a news report on Godfrey's Gotham U rally. Jason asks his guardian if Godfrey could be right about superheroes being an affront to the contributions of the common man. Bruce agrees he is right about one thing. The common man can triumph without the help of a hero like Batman, as Baird did against the Penguin last night. Okay, so what do we think about this one? I'm not sure what point Cavalieri was making like with the, the statement about 
as this is a tie into legends and the whole idea that you know maybe superheroes are more of a menace than an actual help, the story almost kind of supports that by having Batman you know take it down the penguin but not really take down the penguin he's sort of penguin is undone by his own hostage mm-hmm. so is this whole story supporting what godfrey said or is it just undercutting the own the actual heroics of the main characters it's kind of an interesting mixed message i thought what did you think about that yeah i agree it kind of it kind of undercuts what o'neill said and is from the den <laughs> column about him being obsessed mm-hmm. because Batman seems here. It's like, hey, you know, if they can handle it, I'm good. I can stay home. You know, it's that's just. <laughs> and I mean, the idea that you know, I mean, I know before this, uh, you know, like the Earth Two continuity, you had a Batman that retired. You know, even in the Dark Knight movies, you had Batman that retired. But most fans nowadays can't accept a Batman that would retire. You know, I mean, you if, mm-hmm. even if he does retire, he will return. Like. In the Dark Knight Returns, obviously, or something. So the the fact that Batman is so willing to accept, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I can hang it up if these guys can do it by themselves. It it does seem odd. It it does. It's it, it is a weird message since we're going into this crossover. You think we'd be firmly behind the heroes, but we've here we've got a hero kind of in a way questioning it. You know, it's it is really kind of strange. And then of course there's the whole visual aspect that we we talked about how G. Gordon Godfrey was off model last time. Oh boy, is he off model this time? <laughs> <laughs> so if you're reading along, like Legends as part one the Batman issue from last time was chapter one. This is chapter two. Now, in the first three parts of Legends, we've got three different versions of what G. Gordon Godfrey looks like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, we'll we'll have some we'll have some uh, scans up on on uh, the Fire and Water Network page. But I mean, he's about a hundred pounds heavier. He's got dark gray hair. Uh, mm-hmm. Last time he had blonde hair and was very thin. In Legends, mm-hmm. he'll look like. Glorious Godfrey with a pair of glasses, as I pointed out, that this was a pre-existing character. He was not a new character. (laughs) I don't understand how this got through, how it was not redrawn. I mean, he's not in the story that much. I don't think it would have taken long for somebody in the office to, even if Jansen couldn't do it, to get this guy on model, you know? Or even, Mm -hmm. even close to model. Batman 401 was close compared to this. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just wonder if part of it was if O'Neill was coming in late in the game, like if his appointment to be the lead, the head of the bat office, like if these were already in the works at the time that he was actually coming aboard. I mean, we said that, I mean, Barbara Randall, who, who wrote Batman 401, she was his assistant editor. She, you know, picked that story based in part on seeing Magpie. So she kind of knew what John Byrne was doing in Man of Steel and he'd already been doing that when he started Legends. So maybe, I don't know, maybe at the time this was coming along, they didn't have all the pieces in a row. That's, that's the only thing that I can, I can figure. But, uh, I mean, you would think at least, uh, even if they didn't know how John Byrne was going to draw him, you'd think there would be some continuity between Batman and Detective. You'd think O'Neill would have had some oversight and been able to say, "No, well, okay, Klaus or Trevor, one of you draw like the other guy. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, oh, we're on Mike's Amazing World, O'Neill actually edited a few issues of other DC Comics before this issue of detective came out and mm-hmm. batman came out this month he had a couple issues of firestorm i think yep. warlord under his belt 
I don't know if it was a last minute thing that he was going to take over the Batman books or he just was waiting for Ween to wrap his tenure up. I mean, there actually is an issue of Detective, the one before this, is also edited by Ween that came out after Batman 400. And some people pointed that out. We didn't actually, the Detective 567 is the real last Earth 1 Batman story, but that was an inventory story by Harlan Ellison and Gene Colan, and it doesn't... It wasn't that hard stop of, of cotton. Well, it wasn't a hard stop, but it wasn't that very season finale feel yeah. of Batman 400. But so it is, a, I would like to know exactly how it would be interesting to know how all this came about because as crossovers go, I mean, they, they do have the character of, of Godfrey, you know, they're, they're starting to sprinkle in his message in these books, which, you know, works to build up legends. I don't know if either of these deserve to be called chapter one and two, maybe. Uh, prologue one and two you know but it introduces the character as far as the the series functions the the miniseries functions so but yeah it, it'd been nice if he he looked right <laughs> and that is the one thing that well as one of the commonalities between these two issues as they are tie-ins is that you know they they're not playing to the grand scope of legends you know we're not seeing dark side we're not seeing you know brimstone come down and attacking people it's playing to the one very narrow part of that story which is this grandstanding public figure making speeches and making people hate and fear anybody in a mask mm-hmm. which is probably the most important thing as it applies to batman as he is one of the more grounded and street level heroes mm-hmm. so that is something that is very applicable. But these are also things that, I mean, you can also take those parts out of these stories and they don't change the plot that much. Right. They're, they're kind of dropped in there, but they're done. They're not jarring. They're, they're not, they don't feel like they're kind of like shoehorned into a story that's being told. They're, they're fine. The, the presence of G. Gordon Godfrey and his message, it's fine. It doesn't detract from the story. I'm just... Yeah, when I got to the end of it, thinking about Batman and and what the hostage is able to do and actually free himself, I'm kind of like, yeah, I if this was meant to to show me that no, you know, the heroes are what the what the world needs, I'm not sure this story did it. <laughs> but at the same time, this is the second tie-in. There's still five or six more parts of Legends just in the main series. You know, it's still going on for a couple months, so mm-hmm. we don't have to see the heroes triumphant at the end of this series because this is still when the problem is just beginning in terms of Legends. So I guess I'm okay with that, too. Well, and as we saw covered on, on Michael Bailey's Legends series on uh, Views from the Long Box, the Batman that participates in Legends actually left Robin in the middle of a mob because he got perfume in his eyes. <laughs> yeah. Legends was exactly Batman's best showing, let's face it. Uh, <laughs> oh, and by the way, yes, you should listen to every part of Michael Bailey's from Longbox <laughs> Legends series, including episode three, even though neither Chris or I are on that. I'm sorry, I horribly offended Darren and Ruth Sutherland. <laughs> Because they are on episode three. So, sorry, Darren. Yes, absolutely. Every listener should go and download that part to hear them. So, yeah. I'm just kidding with those guys. They were, they were giving me a hard time about saying you can skip that episode. <laughs> you, know, you know what this story reminds me of? It reminds me of a story in a Superpowers mini-comic. 
Okay. There's just something about it that I could see. It's got the penguin in it. I could see it being yep. packed in with the penguin. You know, it's it, the, the idea of genetically engineered birds. You know, the only thing that's missing is another DC character doesn't show up to help him because they were yeah. usually some kind of team up aspect. And yeah. I'm not sure Cavalieri <laughs> didn't contribute to those comics. And I, th- I think, didn't he, did he write the first Superpowers comic miniseries? I could be wrong. Um, don't don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. I'm just off the top of my head. I don't know. What I was going to say is that he had been working on Detective Comics for a little while leading up to this issue, except not working on the main Batman stories. Cavalieri had been writing the Green Arrow backups for mm-hmm. a while. Yes. So, yeah, I, it just it just feels like... I don't know, there's just something about this, you know, I, I don't know what it was, it just jumped out at me. It's, this feels like a superpowers, the pack-in comic. I, I don't know, uh, maybe not so much the idea of the uh, Dr. Baird, you know, saving himself more or less, but just the whole notion of, of genetically engineered falcons and things is just, I don't I, it just it just, I don't know, that's just a notion that crossed my mind. So, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I gotta be honest, as I said earlier, not a big fan of Klaus Janssen when he's not. I, I, I'm not a whore, I'm not a huge fan of his inking. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I appreciate it. I know it works really well with certain artists like Miller, but I have never been a fan of his pencils. I think the storytelling is really weak in this story in several places. It looks rushed. Jansen has a very loose style, but even for him, this issue looks really rushed to me. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I think there was a lot of deadline crunching going on, as we said. And uh, like we we don't know exactly what happened. But yeah, there's 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 a lot of just the pacing is really strange. There's some big action panels at the end of the story that aren't very exciting that I think if he had paced it better... You could have understood what was going on. It took me several reads to figure out that Batman had the little recorder in his palm. It didn't even look like it was in his palm on that one on that one page. I think it was like page eighteen or whatever it was. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's uh, no page page fifteen, panel five. Page fifteen. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it, it's just yeah. I, I mean, I don't I don't want to keep just harping on it, but I've you know I'm not I'm not a big fan. And this didn't help that any. <laughs> yeah, I, I first and foremost, I associate him as Frank Miller's inker. That's just sort of like where I, what I default to, especially the run on Daredevil, which I really liked. But beyond that, when I think of his inking, it usually only stands out to me when it feels like it's overpowering the art somehow. So mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan. And then, yeah, it, it, like... There are times in this when I do really like his Batman. I think he draws a striking Batman in some of these panels. And when Batman is swinging to the Penguins, like Skyscraper, I like how he draws him in motion. He gives him a sense of energy. But, yeah, I can't deny there are other things about the art that I don't like. Uh, the Penguin's nose, for one thing, is too cartoonish. It looks like a cartoon duck bill. <laughs> um, and, like, just the shape of the Penguin doesn't feel right. Robin looks different from panel to panel on the same page. Right. Like, his hairstyle changes. The his, like It looks like he sheds 30 pounds in one pan. Like... Um, the the dinosaur in the bat cave, ugh, like the first time we see that, it's like what the heck am I looking at? And then it, you <laughs> have to look at the next panel. It's like, oh, okay, was is it supposed to be that weird and unnatural? Okay, um, 
yeah, there's shots of like the the cityscape in the background that I think are deliberately unfinished, just to kind of give it a sort of cloudy, atmospheric look. I like that idea, but it does kind of lend credence to the idea that maybe this issue needed another day or two for work. Um, and you, page 14, the top panel on that, when Batman is sort of like leaping and somersaulting like into action, he just drew way too many figures of Batman in action in that sort of like progression to show him leaping over the uh, the catwalk and everything. And it's just – there's just too much there. It's just cluttered. It's like what the – I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore. There's just so many like duplicates of the figure in motion to show him moving. Mm-hmm. There are – individual little bits of art that I do like in this issue, but on the whole, overall, no. I'm with you. I'm not a fan of it. Yeah, it, I mean, there are, I mean, his Batman, overall, pretty good, I think, but his Robin, on page 11, it looks like Robert Blake is Robin. I mean, it's <laughs> Beretta, you know, where's his cockatiel or whatever it is, and and he'd be, Penguin would get him, I guess, but it, the, the, the Penguin on page 13 where he's up in, I guess it's the doctor's face. Or no, I'm sorry, that's page eight. I'm sorry, I was thought it was at thirteen. Page eight. He's right up in the doctor's face, and like the second to the last panel on the bottom. And that I know it's like supposed to be through the doctor's lenses of his glasses, but that has got to be like the worst rendering of the penguin in comics history. I, I just, it looks unfinished. It looks like they didn't. He didn't even ink it. It's like it's a sketch. And uh, the panel above, the one directly before that the doctor is tripped by the penguin's umbrella and he falls but jansen hadn't established any background information in this room they're in and all of a sudden the doctor falls and there's tons it looks like a whole office worth of stuff it looks like he's fallen off a building because there's all of this stuff falling with it <laughs> and he's just tripping across the floor and all of a sudden mm-hmm. he's turned the other way too which he should be falling face first but there's all this st- it looks like he's fallen into a dumpster full of garbage or something it's it's really just really strange and and at the end the the whole thing at the end with the the batman's outside and the the cage with the the falcons and he's inside and dr baird is is inside but i can't tell did he come outside is he still inside he puts this blob of a thing in his the penguin's pocket that's supposed to be a falcon lure it, it looks like nothing it's <laughs> i don't know what it's even supposed to look like it's it's just really it's it just really seems super super rushed i mean i i think this was a pinch hit and it's yeah because i i've seen jansen i'm not like i said i'm not a fan overall but this is beneath what he usually does i think and uh, like even as you're saying, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, some of the things that you're criticizing this book for, those are things that normally I would be saying about Trevor Von Eden. But I was loving his work in the issue of Batman 401 that we covered last time. So right, yeah, yeah go figure. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, yeah, it's it's, and I've got you know, we we had a few critiques of, of Von Eden with the lack of background and stuff, mm-hmm. but he put it in when he needed it. Right, you know, and and here we're 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 not getting the information we need to really follow the action. I mean, you know, that's that's the problem here, and I, I hate to be so negative, but it just, you know, the story's okay. I mean, it's it's serviceable. It's it's nothing. It's not bad. Other than yeah, it's a little strange that Batman's this defeatist about it, and things haven't even started getting bad yet. Batman, just mm-hmm. wait, you know. <laughs> but 
but uh, it does kind of come from a very odd angle at this point in the storyline. I mean, I, I could kind of see when the characters are maybe feeling when they're, they're feeling the the pinch from the the public against them, and they're kind of thinking, well, maybe they're right, you know, or something. They get demoralized a little bit, but Batman's already pre demoralized, it seems. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Uh, I was going to say the other similarity between this and the uh, the other Legends tie-in from Batman 401 is the two villains that we get in these two issues. Mm-hmm. Both bird-themed jewel thieves. <laughs> yeah. And again, kind of thinking, you know, Denny... Maybe he was in a. Maybe he came aboard way too late. Maybe if he had a little bit more time, he would have said, "You know what? Let's do something different. Not have Magpie and Penguin as the two leadoff villains for these series. They're they're pretty similar gimmicks." Or if he wanted to have him like have the penguin be in the background in the first story and then carry over into this one or something, you know, mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. a you know semi villain team up and then you know. I carry over here but yeah it didn't happen and it, it does seem odd that you know it's it's like having the puzzler and the riddler in the story back to back you know <laughs> yeah yeah well because all this story serves to do is you know i i read this and even though this isn't the greatest depiction of the penguin either on the script or on the art side but you know i get this image and i'm like man i really like penguin i don't need another villain with that sort of gimmick so that just sort of undercuts magpie and any kind of claim she might have to kind of like the cool status thing it's like i don't need another jewel thief going after bird themed you know jewels or things like that you know i've got i've got the penguin i don't need magpie so this just kind of reinforces i guess the reason why we didn't see magpie again for so long after the last issue that we covered Right, you know, who knows if they'd hooked the characters together, she might have been the Harley Quinn to Penguin's Joker, you know. Who knows? Yeah, maybe that, they could have done something like that. You know, and if they, you know, they there was constantly wanting to have it to where the Penguin is acting like he goes legit. And of mm-hmm. course, later in the 90s, they did that with the the whole Iceberg Lounge thing during the Chuck Dixon run, which when O'Neill was still editor. But if they'd done something like that earlier and had the Penguin act like he was a legitimate businessman, but he was secretly sending Magpie out to basically carry on his work so he doesn't get, you know, thrown in the pen all the time. Mm-hmm. That might have worked, but the two of them to exist at the same time is a little, especially one issue to the next is a bit much. Or uh, more recently during the New 52 era in Detective Comics, there was a story arc called Emperor Penguin, where a new up-and-coming criminal tried to basically bump off Oswald Cobblepot and usurp him, Mm. and basically tried to take his title and his position. So they could have done something like that with Magpie, make her a rival, make her try and basically muscle in on Penguin's territory, get rid of him. He's old school. He's old news. He's, you know, the Batman 66 campy Burgess Mary. We don't, you know, this is the 80s. We need a new bird-themed villain and magpie. You know, she's she's hot. She's what's now. It could have been a turf war type of thing between the two of them. That would have been interesting. Yeah, I like that. Why why didn't they have us write well? You were like, what, like six? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I was precocious. I probably could have come up with that idea. (laughs) I was like, what, 13, 12, something like that. So, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh... That's all I got on this one, I think. What about you? Yeah, I mean, there's not much to the story. 
I think Cavalieri is he introduces this weird thematic question of are the heroes necessary, which isn't something that this issue will answer, and it's not something that will be picked up in the next issue of Detective Comics because it's something that goes on to be talked about in Legends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just kind of dangling at the end of this issue. And for the purposes of this podcast, that feels a little bit uh, unsatisfying. Yeah. But again, if you want to answer, if you if you do want to be fulfilled for that question, go check out Michael Bailey's Views from the Long Box, where he talks about Views from Legends, that whole miniseries in four episodes, great little podcast miniseries where he talks about all of these tie-ins. Check those out. Yes, definitely. But the story is kind of simple. The art is rough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, on that note, we should probably take another break, and we come back, we can check out the bat signals that came in. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Tim from Cord Industries, the Blue Beetle blog. I'm here to tell you about an exciting new addition to the Silver and Gold family of podcasts. The show is Beatlemania, and it focuses on what is arguably one of the greatest superheroes in all of comics history, Blue Beetle. From the adventures of Dan Garrett the Cop in the 1930s to Dan Garrett the Archaeologist in the 1960s. From everyone's favorite Ted Cord to the more recent adventures of Jaime Reyes, we'll be covering the entire legacy of the Blue Beetle. And I won't be doing it alone. Joining me for this epic journey through the lives of the Blue Beetle will be Jay from the Silver and Gold Podcast. Together, we'll be discussing, reviewing, and celebrating the awesomeness of all of the Beatles. Beatlemania, coming soon to SNGpod.com and Cordindustries.blogspot.com. Okay, we're back, and we're going to jump into the old email sack and also check into the Facebook likes and shares we had. And uh, we have quite a few, so thank you very much. Keep them coming. We got Facebook likes and shares from Aaron Henley, Abel Padilla, Andrew Leyland, Angus Livingstone, Bill Beer, Billy LaCase, Billy Locke, Bob Fisher, Brad Dade, Clint Brown, Clinton Robinson, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Foster, David Gallagher, DeBeche, Derek William Crabb, Don Kelefant, Gotham Shiorin, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, H. Daniel Rebolt, J. David Weeder, James Johnson, Jason Pope, Jeremy Gunter's first Facebook account, Jeremy Gunter's second Facebook account. What, no third Facebook account? Oh, we do have Jerry Schroyer III, so maybe that counts. Joe Crawford, John Wilson, Kalel Commandy, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Mark Adams, Michael Lake, Mike Gillis, Neil Whitney, Ali Amida, Pat Sampson, Radio vs. the Martians, Rob Gray, Rob Kelly, Russell Taylor, Ruth Sutherland, Scott Dunnan, Sean Emmons, Sean Ross, Shag Matthews, Sean Strawbridge, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Taran Bamian, Thomas Vavi, Vera Wild, and Xavier Golden. Since last episode, we've got Twitter favorites and retweets from Alexander Osias, Andrew Leyland, Ange, Anna Springer, Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Chuck Rodriguez, Codeman at Beware the Map Man, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Daniel Budnick, Dave Gould, David Ace Gutierrez, David Bayer Jr., Dr. G, Nerdologist, DS and RS, that's Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Film and Water Podcast, The Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Arujo, 
Hicks at reading underscore Hicks, Jeremy Gunter, Jerry Whitworth, Jim Bow, Justice's First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Let's Talk MOTU, Longbox Crusade, Max Romero, Nerdfix Strangers, Pod Dylan, RAD Network, that's again Ruth and Darren Sutherland, World Spine Podcast, Stephen Burt, Swamp Thing at DC World Swampy, Timothy at Timothy Quinzel, Treasury Comics, Trucker Talk, that's one of Darren and Ruth Sutherland's podcasts, Warlord Worlds, another one of Darren and Ruth Sutherland's podcasts, and Valhalla 130. What? We didn't get a Twitter retweet from Xenozoic Xenophiles, the other Darren and Ruth Sutherland podcast? <laughs> we got four out of five tweets and retweets from Darren and Ruth, but... Cat right. and dinosaurs people don't want nothing to do with us. Oh, snobs. <laughs> All right. We have also received a ton of comments on the first two episodes over on the Fire and Water website, which is incredible. Keep those comments coming. We love the feedback. And you can find those at fireandwaterpodcast.com. If you leave a comment on the website, we promise to do our best to respond in one way or another. That could be a written response on the website to yours, or it could mean reading part of your comment on an episode like we're doing right now. So, back on episode one, where we covered Batman issue 400, the first comment came from Paul Hicks from the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom. And Paul said, welcome to podcasting, Ryan and Chris. Hope you stick with it. <laughs> and FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold and Wild Dog podcast said, I predict big things from these newcomers. Thank you very much, guys. You're, you're so good at welcoming us. Yes. Our pal Rob Kelly of the Fire and Water Network. Uh, wrote in and said, I bought Batman number 400 off the stands. DC did anniversary issues pretty damn well in the 80s. Sure, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that in some panels, Bats can take out one of his baddies with one punch when other times it takes him a whole issue, but what the heck. I too thought that Raish was still dropping his broken arm on Bat's head, a really gross effect. Ballin has a way of making superhero action scenes look impossibly cool, but also realistically mundane, like it really is two grown people in silly costumes hitting each other. That's a good point. It, it's not like photorealism, but there is just a, like a grounded realism to his art that just makes it – it feels like you're looking at something from a movie that is almost jarring if you think about it. Like it's like, why are they wear, dressed like that? But it's right. it's just – you just have to accept it. It's part of the language of the comics that – yeah. Well, it's it, it, there's a line that you can cross. I don't think Ballin crosses it. And I love Alex Ross, but occasionally it is just his buddies in cosplay costumes that he painted. <laughs> yeah. Galactus being the number one one that always just looks so silly to me in Marvels. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's I mean, I love Marvels, but that scene of Galactus getting up after he's been knocked down in the city, it looks like a dude in a Galactus costume. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not it doesn't have the grandiose of Kirby, you know, so Right, right. Well, what does? Yeah, very few things. Uh, Edo Bosnar said, Nice first episode. I enjoyed your discussion, as this is one of the Batman books from the period that you're covering that I actually have. I have to say that out of DC's big anniversary issues of the 1980s, I don't like this one as much as classics like Detective Comics 500, Justice League of America 200, and Superman 400. Even so, it's a pretty strong issue, and I like it when a whole bunch of different artists contribute. However, I definitely agree with Chris about the Sienkiewicz section. In fact, and this will probably sound 
sound heretical, I prefer his earlier art when his style was cleaner to his material from the mid-80s onward. For example, I really don't like the art on Daredevil, Love and War, and Elektra Assassin at all. As for your comparisons between Art Adams and Liefeld, I had to laugh a little because the first time I ever saw Liefeld's art, my first thought was, is this some 14-year-old kid trying to draw like Art Adams? (laughs) As with pretty much everything else on the network, looking forward to future episodes. Well, thank you very much for that, Edo. Yes, thank you. Our pal Michael Bailey of the aforementioned Views from the Long Box wrote in and said, First off, I wanted to say congratulations on producing such a strong first episode. Y'all are veterans at this point, so that's not surprising, but it really feels like you've been podcasting together for years. Second, excellent choices with the score. That's all, Ryan. Elfman's Batman 89 score is my favorite of all the Batman films, and I think whoever edited the episode did a fine job choosing the right music for the right moment. Again, all Ryan. Uh, and that was, uh, I'll cut it right there. It wasn't my intention to use that much scored music on that first episode, but I realized as I was editing it, I was like, you know what? Our synopsis, and it was a long issue, but our synopsis was 25 damn minutes long. <laughs> I was like, okay, I, we need to do something a little bit to kind of like pep this up. So, yeah, I was, I was just like, okay, I, I grabbed a few different pieces from the original score and from Batman Returns and just kind of laced them where I thought uh, they could be sort of moody and, and help elevate the, the thing. And, and that was fun to do, too. But. Yeah, I think you did a great job. That, that's, that, that's a vote for me. So. Third, I love this book. This is Michael again. Third, I love this book. I will agree that it feels a lot like Detective Comics number 526, but I think that the whole all of my enemies against me thing works for Batman since his rose gallery is so strong. I read this for the first time in 1999, well after I had read Nightfall, so it was interesting seeing a similar idea played out over a much shorter period of time and written by one of the main people of Nightfall as well. The various artists all put in some fine work, and I pretty much agreed with all of your points about what they produced. When Andy Leyland and I covered this on the now-departed Bailey's Batman podcast, we didn't notice that Byrne drew the first page until we were about halfway through the issue, so bravo on spotting that before we did. The question of when the post-crisis began for Batman is such a muddy one. Officially, I stand with those that count Batman 401, the coming of Denny O'Neill as the editor, as the actual factual start, but holy crap, their creative teams don't support that. I wonder how different it would have been if Bruce got the Ground Zero reboot that Diana and Clark did. Then we could have avoided Max Allen Collins trying to foist on us whatever version of Batman he had in his head, which looked awful when compared to Mike W. Barr's take on the character, which was the 80s version of the 60s show with a Batman more willing to use someone as a human shield or threaten a dope dealer with prison rape to get the info he needed. (laughs) Then there's Jim Starlin, who is Bronze Age through and through with an 80s political bent. I mean, it wasn't until Alan Grant came on the book that things started to get consistent. On the other hand, most of the stories are good, with issues like Batman number 416 being spectacular, so there's that. Anyway, I look forward to the next episode, and keep up the great work. Well, thank you for that. And I read his, I read Michael's comment, and I started thinking about exactly why Batman didn't get the same, uh, the same change that Wonder Woman and Superman did, and... Do you think it was just a question of like he he was still selling well enough? He wasn't uh, as difficult of a property, or there was there wasn't anything to change. And and I also wondered like could it have had anything to do with like you know not wanting to take away Dick Grayson from the Titans or anything like that at the time? And I don't know. I just kind of wonder why why he didn't get the change that the others did. 
That's that's a good question, and and I think those two things you brought up, the fact that I think the titles were still selling decently. I don't, you know, Frank could probably tell us, look it up and tell us, mm-hmm. but um, I think they were selling well. Batman was still very popular. He was winning the Comic Buyer's Guide favorite character poll every year back when Comic Buyer's Guide was a big thing. So I think that had something to do with it. The Teen Titans. At this point, it was starting to wane, but they had been DC's biggest book. And uh, I, I do think that maybe the idea of rebooting Dick Grayson back to being Robin, you know, didn't appeal to him. Uh, that could have had something to do with it. it. It is strange that Batman, and I think some of the some of the commenters bring that up, that Batman never had the he's never had a hard restart. Even in the New Fifty Two, he didn't have All a right. hard restart. Everybody else, but him and Green Lantern did, but he did not. Um, Which caused a lot of headaches for the New Fifty Two, with yes. <laughs> just because of that decision. It's like, yes, it it's made like, Batman's uh, you know <laughs> childcare uh, issues look even worse than they did before. <laughs> then but, being Robin was just a summer a summer internship. Yeah, five year timeline. Yeah, you know all that. So yeah, <laughs> anyway, uh, we got a comment from Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks podcast and the Punch Like a Girl podcast. He said, "Congrats on the new show. Of all the podcasts I listen to, this one is without question the most recent." Uh huh. <laughs> That's the type of joke I would do. Uh, he said, I'm sure you guys will get the hang of this soon. Don't let the early bumps in the road discourage you. There's nowhere to go but up. Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. Then he said, is he being sarcastic? Is he right, hiding truth in jokes? Did he mean it outright? There's no way to tell. No possible way. Mwahahaha. And I said that, yeah, great. Now our listeners are acting like Batman villains. <laughs> Uh, Siskoid, our pal Siskoid of many fine shows on the network, including Oh Hot Moo or Not and First Strike Invasion Podcast, wrote in, get to the Grant Brayfogle era already. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. I, why, did, why did we start so soon? <laughs> get to next month already. <laughs> That's what I say. Uh, great first episode. The groundwork has been laid. I guess you guys are deep in your Batman phase. Oh, the Batman phase. We'll get into that. <laughs> Go along. Dr. Ange said, unlike many, I've never really had a Batman period. I bought the Brave and the Bold when it struck me, and I would buy the occasional Batman off the spinner rack, but outside of Grant Morrison, I just haven't bought a Batman solo title. So I look forward to this discussion mostly to see what I missed month to month. That said, I bought a ton of Elseworlds and Prestige books with the Dark Knight, and I bought Batman 400. DC knew how to do the gold anniversary issues, and I thought this was fantastic. This was my first exposure to Art Adams, Steve Rude, and Steve Lealoa. I already loved Bowen, Cooper, and Lytle, so this was all win. And I have a soft spot for Raish as a bad guy since I first read his stories in the Batman Treasury book. Hey, hasn't somebody covered that Batman Treasury book recently? I think they have. I think that was on the Treasury cast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. (laughs) That's service with a smile, Rob. Yep. Ting! Uh, <laughs> Paul Hicks wrote in again. Tweedledum and Tweedledee appeared in the Demon Run by Garth Ennis and John McCrea. Amazingly, they did not get killed. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> I've got the first trade paperback from... They've started collecting that uh, McCrea Ennis run on the Demon. I, they've done at least two trade paperbacks. I've got the first one. I haven't read it yet. I've got to get to that eventually. David Ace Gutierrez said, When Ryan told me this was one of his follow-ups to the brilliant and sorely missed Secret Origins podcast, I semi-joked to him that the world needed another Batman podcast. 
I didn't think he was joking. <laughs> uh, David said, I'm glad any reservations I had were wrong. Great episode, guys. I'm not much of a Bat fan these days, but I mostly fondly remember the era you're covering. Look forward to more. Very nice. Uh, Martin Gray wrote in and said, Congrats on a fine first episode. Batman number 400 is a clever place to start. I'm actually sad we won't get you guys covering the whole Conway, Minch, Newton, Colin, etc. run, and Tom Mandrake's work was massively underrated. I love these years, and while there are lots of great individual issues to come, and then the odd superb run, Grant Brayfogle, no modern era maintained the quality for so long. I'm not a fan of Denny O'Neill's stewardship of the Cape Crusader and Company, but I shall love this show because of YouTube. And what the heck is Robin doing on that cover, auditioning for a marching band? <laughs> Yeah, Jimmy McClinchy responded to that one. He thought uh, Robin was starting to dance like the dancers in the Michael Jackson Smooth Criminal video. So. <laughs> Annie, are you okay? Say, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? <laughs> to Martin's point about the Conway Mensch Newton colon era of Batman, um, I don't want to talk out of turn, but there might be another podcast at some point in the future that covers that era. Mm-hmm. Can't say any more than that. Just saying maybe. Be on the lookout for something like that. Mm-hmm. I love that era, too, so let's keep our fingers crossed. Uh, Jim McGlinchey also said, My Batman phase, which is still ongoing, hooray, Yay. Uh, started shortly after this story with the Grant Wagner, Bray Fogle run, etc. That, that's when my love for it started, too. Uh, he said, But I had a chance to read this recently and really enjoyed the story. He's talking about Batman issue 400. I know others have compared it to Detective 526, and the similarities are there to see, but I am a sucker for the Bat-Villain team-ups. For me, I love seeing all the villains get together in an attempt to take down the Bat. Yeah, I mean, who does? I mean, I think partially that's ingrained in anybody that saw the 66 Batman movie mm-hmm. where they all, t- I mean, that was such a big deal, you know, and, and, and it's so fun. And the Return of the Cape Crusader movie, did you see that, the animated? I, I did. I watched that with Nathaniel Wayne, and I loved that to pieces. That was oh. such a good movie. Oh, I did too. I, I love it. I, I, I've watched it like two or three times, the Blu ray of it. I just stick yeah. it in and just get a big, stupid, goofy grin on my. They nailed it. I mean, I love that. But the villain team up in that, it was great to see them all together again and and you even get all the cameos of the other villains so it, it's, now, it's a lot like batman 400 <laughs> yeah the batman movie from the the show with joker riddler catwoman and penguin teaming up that wasn't the first batman team we, we'd had like the joker and penguin team up in issues before that right yes or were the, okay yep. but had we ever had like more than that had we ever had like a big scale like team up or was it always just like one or two characters in the same one i don't think there was ever a big team up that's popping into my head joker and luthor team up joker and clayface had teamed up um like you said joker and penguin teamed up in the 40s i don't think you got a massive team up of all the villains in the same story until that uh, was it several it was several part storyline in batman in the late mid to late 70s where they all took credit for killing batman yeah and, and like yeah. uh rachel ghoul was the judge and and two-face was the the uh, attorney and and they were like all taking a witness stand to say yes i killed batman it's like the mm-hmm. uh i forgot the many deaths of batman or something like that it's it's in a trade paperback which is it, it's a lot of fun it's a day David V. Reed story, which those stories are so weird. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're like almost Bob Haney level. It's nuts, but it's <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah, but I think that might have been the first time in the comics that you got all of them together in one story. And that seems like a thing that's very familiar and very central to Batman lore. And again, I, I think you're right. It is rooted in Batman 66. But it actually occurs to me like with Spider-Man, with the Sinister Six – 
was that in the first Spider-Man annual? Yep, Spider-Man annual number one, yep. And that would have preceded the Batman TV show, because that would have yep. been 64, 65 at the latest that that annual came out. Yep. So That's why Ditko was still there, yeah. I wonder if one informed the other. I wonder if the, the makers of the movie had ever considered like putting the them all together, if that w- was even in their mindset, like thinking about what Spider-Man had done. Possibly, maybe not. I have no idea. But it's just funny that those were around the same time. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, moving on, Bradley Austin Null said, great first episode, good choice for a starting point. Uh, thank you very much. Our buddy Shag of the Fire and Water Network and the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast wrote in and said, fantastic inaugural episode and such a great idea for a podcast. This is a real blind spot for me in Batman history, at least until 1989. So I look forward to exploring it with you. Come 1989, Alan Grant, Norm Bray Fogle for the win. Yes, I. We're, we're everybody's waiting for the Grand <laughs> Everybody's gonna have to wade through the tall grass with us for a little while before we get to the good stuff. Actually, Detective's pretty solid. Yeah. I mean, because you got, I mean, uh, you know, we, we've got the bar, Davis run, and, and Batman Year Two gets some slack, but it's not bad. You know, you got you get the McFarlane art. There's a lot of people divided on that. But right after that, uh, well, a few issues after that, you get Norm Brayfogle, and then you get Grant and Wagner. So it's mm-hmm. it's not going to take us that long, really, to, to, to get... Brayfogle comes on right after year two for one issue, and then yes. he's off for a little bit. Yeah. Until until Millennium, maybe? I don't... And he's yeah. got a story in the annual. Yeah, too. he does. Yeah, yeah so, so we'll see him there. So, yeah. Uh, we got a comment from Chris Carnes who reviews Batman 66 on the Batgirl to Oracle podcast. So shout out to Stella over there. Uh, Chris said, great podcast. I'm glad you covered Batman 400. I thought you both did an excellent job on the synopsis and the format of your show. I can recall when this issue came out and buying two copies. Whenever Batman hit a hundred milestone issue from issue 300 on, I seem to have some kind of life event going on personally by some coincidence. I look forward to future episodes and hearing your thoughts and doing some personal reminiscences for a run of Batman books that I distinctly remember reading and continuing my runs of the titles. Outstanding stuff, and keep up the excellent work. I'm looking forward to the next and future episodes. Oh, thank you very much. I, that's, that's, uh, that is kind of funny how you can look at a comic and say, I remember what was going on when this happened. and <laughs> it's, it's weird. I, I've, I've thought of things like, oh, I bought this issue of Marvel Tales when my mom and dad bought the 1978 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme that we used to have. <laughs> but it pops in my head, you know, so there you go. Uh, we've got a message from our buddy Diablo Frank of the Rolled Spine Network. He says, let me say this up front. I do not have enough interest in Batman to support a bi-weekly sequential indexing show, no matter who the hosts are. And that's the end of the message. No. (laughs) I will ghost on you early and often, and it's nothing personal. It's just Batman. I definitely had a Batman period, which peaked around 1989, but I grew out of it like you're supposed to. Boo! I think the only time I ever bought Batman comics for more than a few months in a row was during Nightfall, which did an excellent job of curing me of ever doing that again. Killer Croc is at or near the top of my favorite Batman villains because he was the original Bane and did it better, before he was ruined by British writers anyway. (laughs) I don't really disagree with him there. I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I would trade Bane away to have a better Killer Croc any day. So. The Jerry Conway Killer Croc back, yeah. Yeah. As a child of the 1980s, I'm willing to grant the cover to number 400 iconic status. I've never read the issue only skimming some scans online, but I've always found that front image striking. 
I even bought a parody book called Nat Rat on the strength of its aping this cover. I also love all the special trade dress for the anniversary. I expect I'll have to buy the real thing. Someday. I doubt we will ever see books like this one in Justice League of America number 200 again. Let's be honest. Most of us are from a generation that has a religious fidelity to style guides, and there's simply too much diversity in modern comics to hit the same sweet spot in our aging, corroded hearts. There's also far too many publishing options and profit to be made outside the big two publishers. Plus, you need strong editors and a production pipeline that doesn't exist anymore to get such a murderer's row of top talent on one comic. We also don't have these types of superstar artists in comics today. I really, really love these sorts of projects, though, and cherish the relatively few that exist. Uh, Frank goes on, speaking of Rob Kelly's favorite comic, I actually prefer the selection of artists on this book. I suspect I'll end up preferring JLA 200 because of the story and characters, but if nothing else, compare George Perez at the absolute peak of his powers here to his softer effort in the earlier book. I like Pat Broderick, but Steve Lytle is an absolute favorite. Our Adams is a god who was perhaps the most essential influence over the later image style, none of whose practitioners ever matched Adams' virtuosity. Then there's Brian Bolland in both comics, a sacred gift to all of fandom. Even Rick Leonardi, an artist I often can't stand, is so on point here as to win me over to supporting his inclusion among these titans. This is a truly exceptional example of the medium of comics. I'll once again giddily disagree with Michael Bailey by asserting that the whole all my enemies against me at the same time bit works best for Batman because his rogues gallery is so weak in raw ability, I mean. The notion goes back at least as far as the 60s Batman movie, and the thing is, these guys are only as dangerous as their ability to keep their distance from the Cape Crusader. The vast majority of Batman foes are mentally unstable geeks with suboptimal physiques and minor gimmick devices and powers. The super-strong ones are morons, while the geniuses of limited scope are crippled by obsessive compulsions and are short, scrawny, fat, etc. If three major Superman villains team up, it's likely to take at least the entire Superman family and probably a host of other heroes to address that catastrophe. If Batman must face all of his foes, it's just the Arkham Asylum graphic novel. Except it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, MTC said, I'm excited about this great new podcast and plan to enjoy the ride. This period definitely deserves another read, and I'm sure I'll have a new perspective all these years later. John writes in, I rather enjoyed both the issue and your discussion. This is an era I've never read, so I'm looking forward to your strong and firm yet gentle hands guiding me into this new world of bat pleasure. I'm not sure how I feel about that. (laughs) Pretty sure that's John Wilson. And, um, oh, okay. Yeah, just say phrasing. Yes, <laughs> phrasing, John, phrasing. <laughs> well, folks, we hope you like that feedback, but that's only part of it. That was just the feedback from episode one. It was terrific. Stick with us. We've got a little bit more to get through. The feedback from episode two, where we discussed Batman issue 401. The first comment came from Dial C for comment. I still love that name, by the way. Mm-hmm. He said, I love the Beware the Batman redesign of Magpie, and they did a really interesting take on her. Also, she's going to be showing up in the Lego Batman movie based on that design, so she might be making a comeback. That's really cool. Some of the characters that they've got, I mean, they are they are scraping the bottom of the barrel of bat villains in this thing. I mean, it, they're actually coming out with little mini figures, blind packages of characters. They've got Orca. I mean, wow, Orca. I mean, yow. 
somehow the marketing for the Lego Batman movie has like flown completely under my radar. Really? I haven't seen any marketing. I haven't seen any merchandise for it. Like I don't know where, what's going on where I've been, but I've just missed all of that. There's Lego sets of it out now. They came out like right before Christmas, and okay. they're so. out. So there's a there's a big Bat Cave set that comes with the Penguin and a bunch of different Batman suits that you can swap your Batman out for. And it's it's it, it looks it looks like I mean I think after the super over serious Batman v Superman we got, it's going to be fun to have a poke some fun at Batman <laughs> with this. He, he needs his he needs his anger bubble deflated a little bit, you know. So <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah. Uh, Michael Bailey wrote again, I'll have some other thoughts later, but I think you guys were a little hard on the cover. I'd be more inclined to agree with you about Batman's absence from the cover if this issue was touted as a bold new era of, for the character. But as you have noted in the past, Batman didn't get a big post-crisis reboot like Superman or Wonder Woman did. So it doesn't bother me that he's not front and center on the cover. Instead, we get a striking, if not badly colored, figure of Magpie drawn by one of the biggest artists of the era. And that works for me, especially with the added design element of the bat silhouettes in her glasses. Then again, I rather like Magpie, so there's a little bit of bias going on. She's part of Man of Steel, and while I have criticisms of that series, it represents something important to me. So the characters that appeared in it have a measure of importance that in many cases, they don't really deserve. Well, he's being honest there, so... I don't have a problem with the image itself, other than the fact that I don't like Magpie's character design. I just I don't like the way she looks. But if I forget about that, the image itself is great. It's a great glamour shot of the character that John Byrne designed, drawn by John Byrne. He did it well. I just I mean that's not it's not what I want from a cover really. I mean if maybe I would feel different if it was the same type of cover with like Two-Face or Joker or a more established, more beloved Batman villain, but I'm still thinking it's issue 401, you know, do show show the Dark Knight himself. I, I don't know. I'm still I'm still kind of locking that. So that's just somewhere where we disagree. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm pretty much the same way. If she didn't she didn't earn that solo spotlight yet, you know, and yeah. especially after she disappeared for years after this, you know, after this her big month at DC Comics, you know, her other cover she had Superman and Batman on it, and this one she took all by herself. So yeah, I, I get Michael's point, but I yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to agree to disagree on this one. Uh, This issue, Michael continues, this issue and the detective issue you'll be talking about next time are so odd. As you both said so well, the post-crisis Batman is such an odd duck. Not quite out from under the era that came before and not not quite into the era that would follow. This issue always felt like an 80s version of the 60s television series. I could have totally seen Annette Funicello play a late 60s version of Magpie. (laughs) That would work. The one bright spot of the story was Bruce Wayne arguing with G. Gordon Godfrey, and if there was more of that, it would have not only been a more interesting issue, but also a better fit for Legends. The artwork is just odd. Not bad, but just not what I want in a Batman story. I actually laughed at the Robin getting an eyeful bit, but I agree that it's, in the end, it's damn silly. Really, the best part of the comic was hearing you two talk about it. Looking forward to future episodes. While the Max Allen Collins issues are probably going to be hard for you, I'm really interested in your takes on Mike W. Barr's detective run and Jim Starlin's Batman run. I'm still of the position that I can find something good in all of the Max Allen Collins issues. That is my line that I am going by, and we will test that every month and every other episode. But I'm, I'm still convinced that we can find something good. We can find some gem in each one of those. It might be dirty. It might take a lot of digging, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, Michael writes, take care, citizens, and see you next month. And then he says, oh, top three Batman artists. Easy. Number three, Graham Nolan. Number two, Norm Brayfogle. Number one, Jim Apparel. Honorary mentions go to Neil Adams, Sheldon Moldoff, Dick Giordano, and Greg Capullo. Yeah, I don't think anybody had mentioned Graham Nolan yet on the other list that we talked about last time. So that's another another new one, but again, one that I can't really argue with. Oh, I loved his. So. I loved when him and Chuck Dixon were doing Detective. Uh, that yeah. was that was great stuff. Mark Baker writes writes uh, it's perfectly fine to criticize the cover on its own merits or lack thereof. So don't really take issue with that. Just the idea that DC did something wrong by not promoting the new era that they weren't themselves entirely sure had started yet. Remember that, even after Crisis on Infinite Earths, hard restarts were the exception rather than the norm for DC heroes. Even the recent New 52 did more of a hard restart than Crisis on Infinite Earths did, and even that had exceptions for Green Lantern and Batman. Indeed, has Batman ever had a hard restart? That was something that we just talked about that not really, no. No. No, but I, and I understand where he's coming from. I think for our purposes, maybe we were a little more critical of the, that aspect of the cover in hindsight mm-hmm. that it started a new era. But I don't know. You'd think Denny O'Neill would, his first issue of Batman, he wanted more of a Bat-centric cover. That's just, sure. I don't know. We've beat that Again, horse like, to death, I think. <laughs> if, that was, if it was Batman 402, I don't think I would have a problem with it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Edo Bosnar wrote and uh, said, Enjoyed this episode even though I never had this issue, so good job, gentlemen. I remember reading the Legends Mini as it was coming out, but I hardly ever bought any of the tie-ins. If I had realized Von Eden was doing the art on this one, I might have picked it up because I love his work, especially from the late 70s, early 80s, but also his more recent stuff, like his two-part original Johnson graphic novel. Haven't seen any of his work from the 90s, so I can't comment. By the way, Space Clusters is one of those DC science fiction graphic novels that were being published in the mid-80s. I happen to have it, but unfortunately I can't really recommend picking it up. The art by Alex Nino is, as one would expect, spectacular, but the story by SF writer Arthur Byron Cover is, well, not necessarily bad, just not very interesting or even memorable. So now we know what Space Clusters is. (laughs) I guess. I still really don't know. (laughs) It's coming. Space Clusters is coming, according to my copy of the cover, you know, which is like, what? which was funny because we're going back and forth where my cover says this. And I'm saying, well, mine says Space Clusters is coming. Hey, my cover for the Detective Comics 568 that we covered in this episode does say Legends will be big. That's what I got on the UPC box. Oh, nice. Mine's got the actual UPC because I bought it off the Uh, newsstand. At least I know mine came out in the right month. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Rob Kelly said, great episode, fellas. I remember buying this and Man of Steel issue three off the newsstands at the time and thinking that Magpie was going to be a big new villain based on these two high-profile appearances. And then, nothing. Uh, Rob said, I was thinking Katy Perry would be a great live-action Magpie, but Lady Gaga would work well, too. Katy Perry would be another great fit for that. Yes, I'd rather see her in that outfit, but that's just me. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like I have, but okay. (laughs) Probably have, yeah. Uh, Rob said, I think Von Eden's work suffers from bad printing. Something about his line work doesn't always translate onto newsprint. This issue seems to be a good example of that. Eh, There might be some validity to that. I can kind of see that. Yep, I can too, yeah. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne wrote again, As a network listener, I've heard Magpie mocked here and there across various shows, but never really known anything about her aside from just guessing at the the give-me-all-the-shinies gimmick. But that cover, holy tap-dancing bleep... (laughs) 
dear God, that's just so 80s. It's every horrible 80s fashion failure dialed up to 11, which would be fine with a gag villain, but if you're meant to take this seriously, just no. Bad John Byrne. Go sit in the corner and think about what you did. <laughs> that's been said rather often about John Byrne, I think. <laughs> He, yeah, some of his design. Every, I feel like every year I try to go back and reread his short run on the Incredible Hulk, and I can never really get through it very well. Even though it's short, I just and part of it is just the way he drew the characters and their their weird sort of jumpsuits and their fashion. I just ah, there's there, yeah, there's just some things about Burns. Not taking anything away from his obvious talent and his skill, he was great, but he had some artistic traits or eccentricities that I wasn't I didn't care for. I was just talking about the some of the stuff he says he needs to go put in the corner, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Uh, our buddy Siskoid said one of the things this revisiting of the post-crisis Batman has made me wonder about is just what was my first issue of Batman or Detective because I'm pretty sure it was post-crisis as a kid I was more into teams and team-ups so my earliest Batman stories were in World's Finest or JLA I just missed Brave and the Bold I think I would eventually score some 70s and early 80s Batman including this very issue but I'm right this minute live well that's at the time that he was writing, not at the time we're reading this, and certainly not at the time you're listening to this, looking at my collection to see what was my actual first issue of either series. Okay, the results are in. Siskoid's first issue of Detective was issue 582 because it tied into the Suicide Squad issue of Millennium, cover dated January of 1988, then Detective 589 because he was collecting the bonus books, August 1988. My first issue of the eponymous title was Batman issue 423, December 1988, with the McFarlane cover. I would start buying both books pretty regularly in the last quarter of 1989 by cover date, so around the Mudpack storyline and the Burn story just before year three and now we know the rest of the story oh very nice i that's that's i've been trying to do that through mike's amazing world figure out what my first books were because i was like tiny i was like two when i started getting comic books and i remember you know i don't even remember some of the covers the 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 insides of the books remain you know but the first two three spreads are ripped off and the covers are gone so and I've kind of nailed it down to around like late 76, early 77 on some books. So I was yeah. barely too. So yeah, that, that's that's fun to do. Yeah, I've never had that problem. I've always known exactly my first floppy copy Batman story was Detective Comics 617. And then right after that, I got Batman 450 and 451. They all came out in the summer of 1990. I would have sworn I got those the same year that the movie came out in 89, but I found out yet later that they, they came out a year later. Um, but the thing is that those were the first Joker stories that came out after uh, a death in the family mm-hmm. it was sort of like his his return um but yeah my first batman comic was uh, a grant brayfogle issue detective 617 there you go so that's so so ryan's waiting too guys just, just <laughs> hold on <laughs> uh paul hicks wrote again magpie is ripe for a comeback in a story called magpie season which in australia it's a terrifying time of year when magpies go nuts defending their nests and swoop everyone in sight Forget Australian snakes and spiders. The most visceral terror I've experienced from our native fauna is the day a magpie attacked me while I was riding my push bike to work. I thought I was unscathed until I parked the bike and removed my helmet and found blood running from my ear down inside my collar. I missed that chunk of ear. <laughs> Jeez. He's like always hitting like kangaroos and 
punching koalas and I mean I just imagine him getting to work he's like he's a, just attacked by all these animals that come out. just bleeding attacked by random birds yeah. that's actually appropriate for the comic you know we should have gotten him in to guest to talk about the cover of this issue yeah that, that could have been Paul Hicks hanging from the from that sign on the cover of this comic <laughs> Uh, we got a comment from Jimmy McGlinchey again. This episode was before the start of my collecting Batman, but it seemed an interesting story. I guess after the story and the one in John Byrne's Man of Steel series, there was really no need for Magpie to come back. I don't know if there are any more stories you could tell with her. I do remember Dan Slott using her in the Arkham Asylum Living Hell miniseries sometime back and thought she was handled well there. Well... So that's the thing. I mean, I, I think you could argue that a lot of villains have had their one story told, and yet they continue to come back again and again and again. But like Dagger, <laughs> <laughs> the Dagger, the Dagger. <laughs> uh, Jimmy also said, "I enjoyed the review of the Batman artists at the end of the episode. I can't argue with those chosen, but I am surprised a few artists were not mentioned, such as Graham Nolan. Well, Michael Bailey mentioned him. A brilliant fit with Chuck Dixon, and you you co-signed that one." Uh, and he also mentions Jason Fabok. Uh, he's a more recent artist who worked on the New 52 Detective Era. In fact, he was the artist on the Emperor Penguin story arc that I was talking about before. Oh, okay. Uh, and then Jimmy said, heck, even great artists such as Jim Lee, Brian Bolland, Brian Talbot, Jerry Robinson, Alex Toth, and Darwin Cook did not get a mention. Batman gets all the great artists. He well, does. Yep. I, th- I think it's synonymous. People like to draw the character. And the character sells really well, so artists want to be attached to that because they'll make more money. So it's, yes, all yeah. the royalties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they might make an action figure of their design too. You know? so. There you go. There you go. More money. <laughs> yep. Uh, Jeff R. wrote, "Magpie always struck me as sort of a premature, slightly off-model attempt to create Harley Quinn." Well, that's kind of yeah. So we kind of brought that up earlier. She she could have definitely been a Harley Quinn type. And I wonder if Batman and GCPD had to drop some kind of hint to the Penguin letting him know this exhibition was a trap for some other bird-themed criminal <laughs> just to keep him from showing up. That's great. I love that. Somewhere there's a piece of jewelry called the Twin Cat Birds, and someone at a Gotham museum sees no possible problem in exhibiting it. You know, Cindy, I and, love- I, yeah, Cindy and I have mentioned uh, several times on Supermates, why didn't Bruce Wayne, just as a billionaire, go buy up everything that had to do with a number two, a bird, yep. a cat, a clown, a toy store, a puzzle, anything to do with that stuff in Gotham and just level it. So the, <laughs> so the criminals had no hideouts, you know? There I mean, you go. Just, just do it. Uh, he, he continues, Jeff R. continues, for top three Batman artists, I'd go Frank Miller, Matt Wagner, ooh, that's nice, and then either yep. Dave McKean, if we're talking best artists who have done a Batman story that is representative of their other work, or Tony Daniel, if we're requiring at least a dozen or so Bat books. I think if he drew it once and it's memorable, then I think it counts, you know? Sure. Or she, it's- he or she. I liked the way Tony Daniel was drawing Batman towards the end of the Grant Morrison run, and he took over from that. I hated when Tony Daniel was writing Batman after mm. that. He did that Battle for the Cowl miniseries, which, man, I, I've told the story before. I read the first two. It was only a three-issue miniseries. I read the first two, and the second issue made me throw the book across the room. It was wow. so bad. It just, he, like, oh, I just, I hated that, so... 
I have kind of like a knee-jerk reaction to dismissing Tony Daniels' association with Batman, but as an artist, yeah, he was he was fine. He was solid. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Diablo Frank came back for a shorter comment, and like he promised, he would occasionally ghost on these early ones, but he said, all I want to say is that I loved the look of this issue and wish Trevor Von Eden had done a year of Batman comics featuring that very Dick Grayson-looking Robin instead of doing Thriller. Also, I like Magpie pretty much solely because she's such a ridiculous post-punk artifact, yet Trevor Von Eden managed to sell her menace and insanity. Finally, I always thought this was a Max Allen Collins story, so one-third of my defense of his run must now be awarded to Barbara Randall instead. I thought the same thing. Remember that? When we were talking about this, I said, well, Max Allen Collins starts next time. You're like, no, he doesn't. I'm like, yeah, he does. And you're like, no, that's Barbara Randall, I think. And I'm like... Really? And I looked it up, and I'm like, well, crap, he's right. I, my brain had rewritten history to say Max Allen Collins started on 401. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, this is one of those cases where as much as I have railed against Trevor Von Eden and not liking some of his art, I really liked it on the last issue, and I thought it was very complimentary of what we would get with Batman Year One by David Mazzuchelli. So if, if Trevor Von Eden had a longer run with that style – I think I would have preferred that to what we get from Dave Cockrum at this point in Dave Cockrum's career a few months down the line. So Yeah, me too. Yeah. See. Uh we actually got an email. Uh the uh we actually got several emails from Zavi the Golden Boy. Uh, and the first one says, Hey Ryan and Chris. First of all, thanks for the podcast. I watched every episode so far. Kidding aside, it made for an enjoyable nighttime walk and I learned some fun DC comics trivia that I'll be able to pull out of my bat cave the next time I hang out with my fellow comics fans. I also have a The Dark Knight Returns opinion perspective to offer, tangentially related to something you discussed at the end of the show. I read The Dark Knight Returns at 14 just a few years ago. I know the plot, its highlights, and of course, it's an infamous representation of Superman. When reading the fourth and final chapter, I couldn't help but notice the noisome, caricature-esque aspects of Superman. But reading the final fight, I found some redeeming aspects of the character's portrayal. He never stops behaving like a friend to Bruce, never stops trying to reason with him. Cough, Batman, Superman, cough! And he still wins after being shot with kryptonite and hit with an atomic bomb. If your opponent has to fake a heart attack to end the fight, you definitely haven't lost. Sincerely, your listener, Zobby the Golden Boy. Don't tell Hawkins. Uh, Yeah, you know, I, I think... I think that there are... I don't think Miller completely assassinated the character of Superman. I think you're right. I think he... uh, Superman's definitely the level-headed one uh, as far as when he's relating to Bruce. But the the, the whole government stooge part's what really makes Superman look bad in in that. And and, and unfortunately, it, it really did affect... Superman's cool factor, you know, it's 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 a shame, but it it really did. <laughs> yeah, and there's always a question of what was Miller intending, and what did the audience interpret, or how did they receive it? Mm-hmm. And there may have been a disconnect, and maybe some of that is on just the audience. I mean, like I said, the first time I read that, I wasn't mature enough to grasp all of the themes that that Miller was talking about in that book and I had a very negative opinion of Superman based on that it, it colored my opinion but sometimes also you, you could put the onus on DC is if they're embracing that if that if they make that their line or if they think that's what people are responding to then they're kind of betraying Superman by what they do like later and 
Anyway, uh, Zavi wrote again after episode two. He said, after listening to this episode, I have a few things I'd like to say. First off, I enjoyed this episode. It had much more of a structure to it than episode one and served to set up some precedents for the show. It was humorous, interesting, and educational. Thank you for that. However, I do have a suggestion. The show would benefit from you guys picking up the pace a bit. Spending over a half an hour on 20 pages is, in my opinion, a bit much. The show would be more enjoyable if you guys talked about another issue instead of discussing advertisements and issues you'll be covering in a couple of months. Podcasts with a similar format are Tom vs. Comics, which provides witty 10-minute commentaries for each issue, and Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which discusses about three issues an episode. Thanks for reading, and I hope you consider my criticism. Signed, Zavi the Golden Boy. First, I I will cop to the fact that episode one and two were way longer than I expected them to be, and part of that is just the nature of how much we do discuss, um, which I really do enjoy. Another part of the length of these early episodes is going to be because we're front-loading, we're doing a lot of world-building in terms of bringing in context for who are the creators, what was going on at the history of DC Comics at the time, the characters at the time, the, the various issues. Certainly in the beginning of this podcast, we're going to be taking a lot of time, and we might spend an hour talking about a 20-page comic eventually we're going to get to the point where that doesn't have to be the case. Once we get into extended runs, like the next you know, six or seven issues of Detective Comics are all written by Mike W. Barr and drawn by Alan Davis. We don't have to do a creator spotlight on each of those guys every episode, so those reviews can move a little bit more briskly. Uh, and, and believe me, as the guy who's editing these episodes, I look forward to that. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm all for doing like you know shorter issues, and we might get to a point in the show where we do review more than one issue per episode. It's not going to be right away. I mean, we're we are sort of taking our time. We're embracing this, and we're doing a lot of building up and exploring and kind of living in the world of these issues and their historical context at first. Yeah, so we're not gonna get it's you know we're we're not gonna jump into the explain the X Men sort of format right away. We might get to that point, but uh, I don't know. No promises anytime soon. Right. Yeah, I think building that context of where we're at, I think that's important to the show to separate it from other Batman shows. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that I think we need to do that. And like you said, as we get into basically as we get through this kind of strange period where Denny O'Neill is trying to feel out what he wants to do. It'll things will kind of congeal into uh you know into a more rapid pace where you know we won't have to like you said cover the creators we won't have to say well where are they coming from here it'll be more jump right into the story and into the particulars of the issue you know uh so so yeah I think I think the pace will pick up and 400 was a big comic you know yes it was yeah Yeah. lots of artists and we wanted to you know and it was a big it it, it was the type like Frank said it's the type of comic you're not going to get anymore so we. We kind of did want to make a, a big deal out of it, and, and it, we may have went a little overboard with the synopsis being a little long, but you know, I've, I've been—that's my New Year's resolution to do shorter synopsis anyway on my end. So, and you're you're a lot more succinct than I am. So, <laughs> but you know, I I keep saying that, but I I think you and I both have very similar styles and approaches to story synopses. And that, I mean, I would love to kind of like get my brain into the point where I'm just doing, you know, bullet points of what are the highlights of the story. But when I sit down to write them, 
I always kind of find myself doing, well, if I hadn't read this comic, what do I need to know to get the most full enjoyment and experience of what this comic was doing? And to do that, I pretty much got to describe the whole thing. And I, and I try to be faster when I do that, but it's it's it rarely comes out that way. So. Right. Yeah. There was a there was a um, a post on Back Issue Magazine's Facebook page, and some discussion of of, of, of comic podcasts come up, and uh, there was, uh, somebody said, uh, you know, I, I don't like it when a comic podcast all they do is basically synopsize the story. Uh, but I think you have to synopsize the story because not everyone has the comic. You know, I right. mean, that shouldn't be all of it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and I think we all, uh, you know, almost every comic podcast I listen to does a pretty good job of, of synopsizing the story and then discussing how they feel about it and put it in historical context and everything. I think that's important because, I mean, you know, it, you've got to put it in the context of when it came out, if it's an older comic, because you know it might not make a lick of sense if it came out now you know but back then it might have made sense and i think you do you know you do have to be mindful of both you have to make sure you describe it in a fashion that the listener can follow it but also that you know you don't go you know maybe not panel by panel you know so right. you know but uh, and but but we'll definitely pick up the pace as we go along as we said right i've also i've listened to podcasts where basically somebody just read the comic to me and mm-hmm. that wasn't enjoyable. I mean, I think we can do it a little bit better than that. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, that is the listener feedback that we have gotten from the first two episodes. I know this feedback section took a lot of time because we had so much to get through. Ideally, we can do feedback on every episode talking about the previous episode just because that will help things move faster and again kind of expedite and i i do like to get the uh the you know rapid response to everybody's you know comments and concerns and and their questions i love the interactive part of these podcasts that's one of the reasons why i do things it's one i i really strongly believe in this feedback section um it's a great reward for you for listening and it helps it creates a dialogue between us and it helps us refine because you might make a suggestion or comment that we hadn't thought about that we're like, you know what? That should be something that we integrate into the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like I said, that is what we've got for Batman Nightcast Episode 3. Next time, we're going to come back with You Know Him, You Love Him, Max Allen Collins' debut <laughs> on Batman Issue 402. And uh, if all goes well, you'll be hearing that one in about two weeks. Yeah, and oddly enough, we've got two pretty famous Batman creators from this era that are very influential on this one issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one's doing something that he doesn't do later on <laughs> when he comes <laughs> back on the title. So, <laughs> Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. You know I'm